Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at That's Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Welcome to the Science of Success. Introducing your host, Matt Bodner. Welcome to the Science of Success, the number one evidence-based growth podcast on the internet with more than 3 million downloads and listeners in over 100 countries. In this episode, we look at how to live a healthy, happy, successful life from the inside out. We explore what it means to have an integrated brain look at lessons across vastly different scientific disciplines and share the accessible, simple strategy you can use in 20 minutes to integrate the most important learnings from scientific research to create an integrated brain, body, and mind to improve your health, happiness, well-being, and success with our guest, Dr. Dan Siegel. Do you need more time, time for work, time for thinking and reading, Time for the people in your life? Time to accomplish your goals? This was the number one problem our listeners outlined, and we created a new video guide that you can get completely for free when you sign up and join our email list. It's called How You Can Create Time for the Things That Really Matter in Life. You can get it completely for free when you sign up and join the email list at successpodcast.com. You're also going to get exclusive content that's only available to our email subscribers. We recently pre-released an episode and an interview to our email subscribers a week before it went live to our broader audience. And that had tremendous implications because there was a limited offer in there with only 50 available spots that got eaten up by the people who were on the email list first. With that same interview, we also offered an exclusive opportunity for people on our email list to engage one-on-one for over an hour with one of our guests in a live exclusive interview just for email subscribers. There's some amazing stuff that's available only to email subscribers that's only going on if you subscribe and sign up to the email list. You can do that by going to successpodcast.com and signing up right on the homepage. Or 
If you're driving around right now, if you're out and about and you're on the go, you don't have time, just text the word SMARTER to the number 44222. That's S-M-A-R-T-E-R to the number 44222. In our previous episode, we showed you how to solve any problem in your life using a simple, no-risk tool that you could start with right now. We dug into why you get stuck on problems and how we often deceive ourselves. We talked about why reasons are often a ruse and how they can become dangerous once they turn into excuses. All of that and much more in our previous interview with our guest, Dr. Bernard Roth. If you want to crush any problem that's been holding you back, listen to that episode. Now for our interview with Dan. Today, we have another exciting guest on the show, Dr. Dan Siegel. Dan is a clinical professor of psychiatry at the UCLA School of Medicine and the founding co-director of the Mindful Awareness Research Center at UCLA. He's a multi-bestselling author and award-winning educator and a distinguished fellow of the American Psychiatric Association. His work has taken him across the globe to work with individuals such as the King of Thailand, the Pope, the Dalai Lama, and more. Dan, welcome to the Science of Success. Matt, it's a pleasure to be here with you. Well, we're very excited to have you on the show today and to get into some of the fascinating stuff that you talk about. I'd love to begin and open with this idea of integration. You talk and, and have written and spoken a lot about the idea of integration. What does it mean to live a truly connected life? Yeah, well, that word is a really great one to start with, Matt, because it's a simple process where things that are different or unique or special within whatever focus we're looking at. Let's say it could be your brain inside your skull. It could be your whole body, including its brain. It could be a relationship between two people and a close emotional relationship, or it could be a family or even a company you might work in. Whatever the system is, the idea is different parts can be honored for their differences and then linked or connected or allowed to be having communication with one another. And this way that you maintain differences and even cultivate them, nurture them, while also establishing connections, it doesn't have a formal term in mathematics, but it's something we can call integration. And that linking of differentiated parts turns out to be the fundamental way, what's called a complex system, which is a certain kind of system, the way it optimizes its functioning, the way it has what's called self organization. And so a complex system's optimal self-organization creates basically harmony, a kind of flexible adaptive state of flow. And when it's in that state, we can say it's in a state of health. There's a lot of reasons over the years and the last 25 years that I've been writing about this to show that health, a healthy life, a successful life, a happy life come from integration. And the science of that is absolutely fascinating. When that's not happening, you go to either chaos or you go to rigidity. It's kind of like a river. One bank is the bank of chaos where things are completely unpredictable and you know overwhelming. It's kind of out of control. Or the other bank outside of this more harmonious flow of integration is the bank of rigidity where things are completely predictable. They have this dullness to them. They're unchanging. They're you know inflexible. And those two banks, it turns out, describe whether it's an individual, his or her life, or it's 
you know, family or a company or a nation or even the world, you can look at chaos and rigidity as being a sign of things not going well. They're not successfully unfolding. They're not happy. They're not healthy. Those are all impairments to integration that are revealing themselves as chaos or rigidity and not the harmony that comes with, with the well-being of integration. Tell me more about this idea that a healthy, successful, happy life comes from being integrated. Well, you know, it's such an interesting thing. When it first started emerging in the early 90s, you know, I'm a scientist as well as a clinician. Of course, I'm a person, but also in different roles as a son, a brother, a a father, a, a husband, all these different things I am. I started wondering across all those roles, you know, how do you know you're successful in any of those things? How, what's the science of success? What's the, what's the way that you go beyond just what people might tell you, but actually think, gosh, is there a fundamental unity of what ties those together across all those roles we play in our lives? And it turns out that through a long line of deep reasoning about the various sciences, and I, I work in a field called interpersonal neurobiology, where we combine every discipline of science, for example, math and physics, chemistry, biology, of course, including neuroscience, genetics, medicine, things like that, psychology, sociology, linguistics, anthropology, all those scientific fields. What we do in our, our framework, interpersonal neurobiology, is we combine them all together. And so if you're looking at, let's say, an individual life, like I do as a psychotherapist, I bring the lens of interpersonal neurobiology into my work so that I'm offering, first of all, a definition of the mind, which is very useful to have if you're a mind therapist, and we can get into that later. But a healthy mind, basically a mind that creates success and well-being, is a mind that's creating integration within, so integration inside your body and integration between, which is integration in the relationship of the body you're born into with other people and the planet. And you can go step by step through any of those areas, you know, the internal world and the relational world and identify when relationships, let's say, with other people, when are they integrated, when are they, when are they not? And we can talk through the details of that, but when you just basically use this scientific framework, uh, it's amazing how useful it is to, first of all, clarify what success and happiness really mean, and then to be able to measure it scientifically, and then also to be able to do an intervention when things aren't going well, when you're stuck on that bank of chaos or rigidity. How do you know that that's happening? And then what do you do to get yourself back into the main flow of harmony? And so that's that's the overall view of the relationship of integration to success and well-being. I think that this multidisciplinary approach that you have is fantastic. It's so important to approach problems from any and all angles. No academic disciplines exist in a silo. Exactly. Well, that's right. I mean, they, they function as silos, but when you look at the nature of reality, kind of like the old Indian fable of the blind man and the elephant, there's a whole elephant, even though a given blind man may just may, no, may only study one part, like the toe or the tail or the ear or something. And, but you're right, the whole elephant does exist, even if the blind men are separate, even if the disciplines tend to silo themselves, they shouldn't be siloed because the reality they're trying to study actually is a non-siloed reality. I, would you agree with that, Matt? 
Yeah, absolutely. And that's what I that's what I meant. Obviously, they yeah. exist today in, in many instances in silos, but it's so refreshing to see somebody whose approach is so broad and integrated and, and cross-disciplinary. Yes, thank you. Well, thank you. I really, really appreciate that. It's, you know, it's an interesting space to work in and try to really maintain because, you know, of course, in the university life, there's a beautiful book called Consilience by E.O. Wilson, which points out how the- Great book. Yeah, isn't you like that book, huh? It's a it's the economic, psychological, and political structure of a university encourages silos and a lack of collaboration and cross disciplinary work and also just thinking. So it's a beautiful book. I you know I I agree with you totally. And in that approach, basically, when I used to be full time at the university, I found it so intriguing. This is way before. Wilson wrote the book, but I was living the life of what he had been, will later write about, you know, that when I brought a bunch of scientists together, how you could address a simple question like, you know, what is the connection between the mind and the brain? That was the one question we were going to address. We had 40 scientists I had invited into a collective discussion about it, and there was very little agreement. And I had to try to find ultimately what Wilson would call a consilient view. I didn't have a word for it. I would just call it like, you know, kind of common ground or something. You know, what could, let's say, an anthropologist and a neuroscientist, just to use two examples, what could a neuroscientist and an anthropologist in the room use as a common ground vocabulary where the concepts and the methodologies that they use in their siloed approaches don't really overlap, but could you kind of squint your eyes in a way to, to see what was in common across them? And so, you know, what I did was had these 40 scientists and it was kind of like an emotional experience because they were all my either teachers or friends or colleagues or whatever. And they were all in the room and we had this one question, what's the connection between the mind and the brain? And I needed to, because they weren't getting along after the first meeting, really develop this kind of consilient attitude and saying like, what if everyone is correct? What if all the blind men are correct? Could we offer like a big picture view? So you say, yes, anthropology, you're correct. The mind is a relational thing. And yes, neuroscience, you're correct. The mind comes from brain activity and everyone in between, you know, they're both correct. Now, when we first got together, they couldn't see any way to see that they were both correct. So there was a lot of argument and a lot of very uncomfortable feelings in the room. So in the second meeting, when I had to bring a view of what the mind might be, actually, there was no definition of the mind short of brain activity or something that was very vaguely described. And and so the definition of mind that I ended up offering turned out to be a consilient statement that allowed us to meet for four and a half years. And I really learned a lot from my colleagues about the importance of honoring different disciplines and understanding how hard the work they do is. And yet for me as a therapist and someone trying to put this, what we called ultimately called interpersonal neurobiology framework together, you know, it was, it was really important to see if you could find common ground so that we could collaborate with each other. And that's, you know, now we have over 75 textbooks that I've edited in the field of interpersonal neurobiology. I'm the founding editor of the Norton series in that field. And so it's it's been a beautiful journey to say you could recognize the importance of 
cross-disciplinary thinking to bring all the sciences together, even though it's a hard space to do because, you know, you get people maybe getting a little irritated sometimes or, you know, wondering why you're not just sticking with their discipline because their discipline is better than the other discipline. I mean, so you really have to be very politically astute and, you know, scientifically on your toes because you really want to respect the individuality of each discipline, but you're also creating kind of this consilient framework that says, hey, everybody's important, not just one person. So that sometimes it has to be in the front of your mind as you do, do the work. There's so many different ways that we can unpack that, but one of the underlying principles that I think is really important to expound upon is this notion that the reason it's so important to have a, a consilient approach is that reality is one interconnected whole. It's not, we think it's easy to divide it up into silos and disciplines and, and even ourselves as something separate from it. And yet when you really look at the hard science and the and the, the data and the, the, the reality of it, it's it's actually nearly impossible to truly separate any one thing from anything else. Exactly. Well, Matt, that's exactly the point. And, you know, the common ground that felt at the time, like worth proposing to these 40 scientists. And when I came back in the second meeting and there was like a hundred percent agreement that we could go with this proposal, I was, I was kind of floored because, you know, you can't get academics to agree on even what to have for lunch. So like that they would agree on this fundamental notion. And basically it came from a walk on the beach and it's, it's very simply, it's the idea that, you know, if you were studying the beach and a university required you to either be a water specialist or a sand specialist, and you said, hey, but I'm interested in the whole coast. And they go, no, you have to choose. Is it water or is it sand? And you go, but the coast is both. You know, and they wouldn't let you do it. You know, you would be a water specialist or a sand specialist and you never really see the coast. So the coast is made up of sand and sea. So in a similar way, I thought, well, if an anthropologist is correct and a neuroscientist is correct, what could be the thing shared in culture that is shared in neural circuitry? And the simple common ground, what now we would call consilient possibility, is that it's energy and information flow. So a culture is filled with the sharing of energy and information flow in this in embedded way that we call culture. And when you study neuroscience, basically it's energy and information flows streaming among the interconnected cells, the neurons and other cells inside your skull. So the common ground there is the flow of energy and information. It can take different forms in those different locations. One is electrochemical energy flow that when it's in certain patterns is in formation. It's having a symbolic capacity to have meaning. But the same is true with culture. You know, we have sounds that could be like this, blah, 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 pure energy. But then we can have billboards on the road. Or, you know, if you go into a restroom in a hotel in a certain culture, you see in the men's room a diaper changing table. Well, that's a cultural message. You know, get your act together, men. You're, you're responsible for changing your baby's diapers. So that's a simple, you know, example of energy and information flow. It's it's a little sign on top of a diaper changing table in the restroom that is embedding meaning, which is what information is, through energy patterns. In this case, 
the light that you would be seeing this object in the bathroom. So that view then says, well, energy and information flow is what's shared in neuroscience and anthropology. And then it turns out that every different discipline could use that. Then you say, well, what's the mind part of that? How is the mind a part of a system which is embodied and relational energy and information flow? And then that's where you get into this idea of complex systems, which are open and capable of being chaotic and what's called nonlinear, which means a small input leads to large and difficult to predict results. And that view of energy information flow being the essential element of a complex system led me to really look back in the early 90s to the properties of complex systems. And one of those properties is just called emergence, that the essence of the system is interacting with itself like water molecules and air molecules in a cloud, and it gives rise to something that's called emergence. So emergence is a real property in our universe of complex systems. And one of those emergent phenomena is called self-organization. It's how this complex system regulates its own becoming without a conductor or organizer. It just is a part of the probability theory, systems theory, complexity theory, understanding of how complex systems unfold over time. And so what I thought was when you looked at the properties of self-organization, the self-organizing fundamental aspect of a complex system, when it's optimizing that function, that functioning, it's differentiating and linking. And in math, they don't have a name for that, but we're just going to name that integration. And when it's not balancing the linkage of differentiated parts, as we mentioned earlier, it goes to chaos or rigidity. And that's straight from complexity theory. So then I thought back in 1992, wow, what if one aspect of the mind beyond subjective experience and consciousness and information processing, which are common descriptors, what if there's a definition, a fourth facet of the mind, which goes like this, the embodied and relational, so that's the location within the body and between the body and the world around it, the embodied and relational emergent self-organizing, so we're saying it's a part of a, a complex system, the emergent self-organizing process, so it's a verb, not a noun. And what's this process doing? It's a self-organizing process that is regulating the flow of energy and information. So that's the definition I brought to the group. And I said, you know, maybe the system of mind is energy and information flow, it's embodied and relational, and maybe one facet of this multifaceted mind is self-organization. And every one of the 40 people raised their hand, I can go with that. And we went on to meet for all these years. And it was absolutely fascinating that with that definition, you could then predict back in 1992, that future research, which didn't exist at the time, if it came around, would show that health emerges from integrated systems, whether that's in the brain or the whole body or relationships, and that unhealth would manifest as chaos or rigidity and would be emerging from impaired integration. And so far, every study that's ever been done, I have 16 interns work with me to revise my first textbook into its third edition. I say, you know, find something that goes against this. And we've reviewed 3000 articles. I'm now going through them all so I can tell you it's a lot of work, you know, and everything supports the notion, we wouldn't say it's proven, but supports it that every study of the brain of someone with a major psychiatric condition has impaired integration. 
And every study of well-being shows that integration in the brain is the best predictor of well-being. And when you look at interventions like mindfulness practice or, you know, these ways you train the mind to be compassionate and open and focused, I call it three-pillar training. Those are the three pillars of compassion training or kind intention training, open awareness training, and focused attention training. So this three-pillar training basically integrates the brain in exactly the ways that certain situations like trauma impair the growth of the brain. So we can go into the details, Matt, if you want, but that's just an overview to address your question. You know, where where do we go with the interdisciplinary view? And to me, it's just an incredibly exciting moment because, you know, these hypotheses from 92, now over 25 years later, have all been supported. We can't find anything to go against it. And then you can do interventions like this thing called the wheel of awareness, where you integrate consciousness and get these really magnificent windows into not just the nature of the mind, but how to create a healthy mind and a successful life of well-being. I want to unpack a lot of these different pieces. I definitely want to dig into this idea that the mind is is embodied and also relational. I want to talk about three-pillar training. I want to talk about the wheel of awareness. Before we get into any of those, to contextualize this a little bit more, I want to hear your story about your experience in Namibia. Yeah. Wow. Well, you know, our institute is called the Mindsight Institute. And, you know, for years, when I, when I was in medical school in the 70s, I noticed that my teachers didn't sense the mind. And that is, they treated people like, you know, bags of chemicals. It was very strange. And I dropped out of school for a while. And before I came back, I made up this word mindsight for how we see the mind. So you have physical sight where you see things like chemicals or the body or whatever. But then there's mindsight. It's a different system, you know. So flash forward many years, you know, we became very interested here at the Mindsight Institute as to whether other cultures that represent in some ways not the influence of contemporary culture, would they have words that try to communicate about the inner nature of our subjective experience or what we're aware of? So that would be how you'd look at the insight capacity of a person to have mindsight and then how they would use that for empathy. These are two of the three aspects of mindsight. So mindsight is insight into your own mind, empathy to understand the mind of another, and integration. The third thing is to you know honor differences, promote linkages. So it's basically kindness and compassion and love, really. So we went to Namibia because there was some reason to believe that genetically some of the ancestors of the group that was the originally the homo sapiens who were the originators of all human beings were there in namibia there's some some other views these days but that was the line of reasoning then so we went to namibia and we went out to different tribal groups and we had the good fortune of being able to have a translator with us and interviewed the villagers to see if they used mindsight language and indeed they did and so that's why we went and it was a really exciting thing and if there was any way to to get close to the original ancestors of all of us we were there and it was a beautiful thing but one evening around the campfire we were just hanging out with the villagers and i asked the translator to ask one of the villagers a question because there was a drought there and there was a famine and there was a lot of disease and there was a lot of poverty and people were appearing really really happy and it was kind of perplexing from a contemporary cultural view of the importance of material comfort 
that we associate with what we think success and happiness is. And, you know, I see a lot of miserable people with a lot of stuff here in the contemporary world. But there we were in Namibia with all these challenges to material comfort, but they seem very happy. So the translator says, you want me to ask the, this guy if he's happy? I said, yeah, and if he's happy, why is he happy? You know, I just, and, and you want me to ask him why he's happy? I said, yeah, please. So he asked the villager the question, and the villager says to me, I will never forget. He says in his language, and it's translated back into English for me, he says, my people are happy because we belong. We belong to one another in our community, and we belong to earth. And there was like this silence, and I felt incredibly grateful for the response. And then this wave of sadness came over me about just thinking about back home in the United States. And, and then the villager asked the translator a question who translates it for me. And he says, he wants to know if where you come from, do you belong and are you happy? And I thought about how much misery there is where we are. And so I said, you know, there is a, a lot of experience of not belonging and there is a lot of unhappiness, even though there's a lot of, you know, relatively, you know, there's food, there's not the disease you're facing, you know, we, we have water. I mean, but there's a lot of unhappiness and people who don't feel successful and they're on this ladder to try to try to get more successful and more stuff and more of this, more of that. And we just all stared at each other. And that moment has really stuck with me. And, and the whole notion of belonging relates directly to what we're talking about, the mind being both embodied and relational. And it raised for me back then, when I was in Namibia, a deep, it's a question, but it's really like an emotional question kind of thing. Like, what is the self? You know, what, what is the self really? And, you know, this is my next book is all about this that I'm just starting. And, you know, it's idea of like, in contemporary culture, we tend to think of the self as your body, you know, or, you know, since the time of Hippocrates, you say the mind is just brain activity or you know, neuroscientists certainly reaffirm that. And that places the mind as the source of self inside your, your skin encased body. And I think there's just something fundamentally limiting about that, if not outright wrong, that this villager was really describing the idea of belonging to community and belonging to earth. You know, and, and since then, you know, a lot of my, the workshops I do and the connections I have with, you know, I consider people coming to workshops, my colleagues, you know, we're all on this journey together to try to learn, you know, the whole notion of an integrated self would be where, yes, you have a body and the body, you know, is an I or a me. It's an internal locus of your you know, location of your mind, of yourself. But you also have a relational self that's different. It's differentiated, but it's equally as important. And yet it's not really a focus of what we often do in contemporary culture. It's all about I, me, mine, you know, this internal thing. So a relational self would be like an us or a we. And, you know, I started teaching these lectures, you know, called From Me to We, which sounds kind of cool and rhymes. And one of my online students had come for this in-person workshop and she got really angry at me very appropriately. And she said, you know, I'm really mad at you. And I said, what are you mad about? She goes, the title of your talk. And I said, what's the wrong with my title? She goes, it's me to we. I said, what's wrong with that? You know, we is important. She goes, yeah, I know we is important, but why get rid of me? I go, oh my God, you're right. She goes, shouldn't I be like exercising my body? She goes, I go, yeah. She goes, shouldn't I be like understanding my personal history and where I came from, my relationship with my parents, you know, the whole parenting from the inside out approach? I said, yes. 
And shouldn't I, you know, sleep well? I said, of course you do all these things. She goes, isn't that all the internal experience? I said, yes, it is. She goes, so why would you want to drop me? I said, you shouldn't. She goes, we'll come up with another name. And so I said, okay, well, how about not only limited to an internal me, but also extended to a relational we? And she goes, that doesn't rhyme at all. So I said, okay, okay. You know, if you're gonna have an integrated self, it would need to be kind of like a candle is, you know, now I say this kind of like a candle is both the wax and the light. You're going to be the wax of your body as a me, but the light of your relationships, which is a we. So, you know, if you integrate that, you maintain both somehow. So me plus we equals we, I said to her, and she was very excited about it. So I've been using we, M-W-E, as the simple three-letter word. We've been getting all sorts of other foreign languages, foreign from English, other languages to come up with their own version, like Yonos in Spanish and things like that. And it's been fun because... Mui allows you to have your internal experience, but also puts right into the word the relational identity as as a we. So me plus we equals we. So that's what came from Namibia is realizing that, you know, belonging, not just fitting in, but actually belonging where you're maintaining your me, but you really are part of a we. So you're a mui is, I think, for me, the, or from we, is the way, you know, the belonging lesson from Namibia has, you know, come through in, in, in what I'm working on now. And clarifying this for the listeners and, and making sure that I understand it as well, this idea of the relational self in a very real and scientific sense is the notion that our minds are composed of, and one aspect, our relationships with others and with the world as well. Is that correct? Absolutely. And when you put the mind as this embodied relational emergent process that's coming from energy and information flow, then basically what you do is with that view, you realize skull and skin don't limit that flow. So it's an artificial divide to put the mind and the self, which I think comes from the mind, to limit that by your skull or by your skin. So the system is energy and information flow, just as you're saying, Matt. It's inside your body and, underscore and, it is also in the energy and information flow you are sharing from the body you're born into. So you do have an internal me, for sure. We're not denying that. And you have a relationship with other people and the nature around you, which, just to make it two-piece, we'll call that the planet. So it's people and the planet is the connection that creates your relational self. It's really an interconnectedness. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. 
Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Hiring the right person takes time. Time that you often don't have. But you shouldn't let a time crunch get in the way of finding the right candidates for your business. That's why LinkedIn is the best place to post your job. In fact, I was on LinkedIn Jobs this morning looking for candidates to fill a key role in one of my businesses. LinkedIn Jobs screens candidates with hard and soft skills you're looking for so that you can hire the right person quickly. You can look for things like collaboration, creativity, and adaptability, looking beyond just work skills and resumes to connect you with the candidates who are a perfect match for your business. That's how LinkedIn makes sure that your job post gets in front of the people you actually want to hire because they have a much better ability to get a deep insight into exactly who is the right candidate for you and your business. Find the right person meant for your business today with LinkedIn Jobs. You can pay what you want and the first $50 is on them. Just visit linkedin.com slash success. Again, that's linkedin.com slash success to get $50 off your first job post. Terms and conditions apply. Let's dig into the three pillar training that you talked about before. I'm starting to understand the importance of being integrated and how that can make us live in harmony and be much healthier and happier. How do we really implement that into our lives and start to become more integrated individuals? Yeah, well, you know, I think the question you're asking is so important because these, while these concepts are scientifically grounded and, you know, all these things, the science books, you know, developing mind and other books, you know, I read are, are, are trying to review the science you really want the practical application of it. And so I wrote this book, Aware, to extend these ideas that are summarized in also a book called Mind, just as a journey book, you know, to understand it, to say, well, could there be a book that teaches a person exactly how to do this? So Mind Sight is a book which gives you stories of what people have done across their different domains of integration. So we want to recognize that one of the first domains a person should work with of those nine is the domain of consciousness of your awareness so the three pillar training is basically that you're asking about is what research tells us in the studies that have been done over the last let's say 15 years that if you train your mind with three fundamentally practical steps the first is to develop focused attention where you sustain attention on something. And when your mind gets distracted, you learn to let go of the distraction and redirect your attention back to the intended focus. So that's focused attention, number one. Number two is called open awareness. So the second pillar of open awareness means you're opening the mind to be just letting whatever unfolds unfold. And I'll give you a visual image of this in a moment. That I think helps it become clear. And that's open awareness training. And the third has various names. Some people call it 
kindness training, compassion training, loving kindness training. There's all sorts of names for it, but they're all basically similar. It's to honor our interconnected nature with a kind regard. And because that's an intentional state, I just call it kind intention training. So those are the three pillars, kind intention to develop this positive approach to one's inner life or the life of others, open awareness to open up awareness to whatever arises and and be present for that, and focused attention to learn to focus attention, sustain it, and redirect it when you're distracted. So let's just call that three-pillar training. It overlaps with what some people would call mindfulness training. Other people say, no, no, it's not mindfulness training. It's compassion plus mindfulness training. Other people say, no, it's this and that. So I just, knowing those researchers who name it different things and looking for the consilience, I just call it three-pillar training and everyone's happy. And it's three-pillar mind training. So what does the research show? The research shows, just to start with the science, that if you do three-pillar mind training, you actually will cultivate integration in your brain. I mean, I can go through the parts of the brain that get more integrated, but basically you're going to develop what's called neuroplastic changes. Neuroplasticity is just how you change the structure inside your head, the brain, in response to experience, and you're basically directing these mind training experiences to, in the three-pillar ways, that integrate the brain. So that's awesome because every form of regulation that's responsible for a successful, happy, resilient life depend on integration of the brain. And that's like regulating attention, emotion, mood, thought, memory, behavior, morality, relationality. All that depends on integration of the brain. And these areas are integrated with three-pillar practice. So that's kind of awesome. And then, you know, you also with three-pillar training in terms of health of the body and a successful health span is what it's called. Here are the five things that, you know, three-pillar training has been shown to do. And, the, you know, these are, number one, it reduces stress or lowers the, the stress hormone cortisol. That's a good thing. Number two, it improves immune function. So you can fight off infection. That's a good thing. Number three, it optimizes cardiovascular factors like lowering cholesterol, lowering blood pressure, improving the way the heart and the brain and the head communicate with each other. Some people call that enhanced vagal tone. It does that. That's number three. Number four, it reduces inflammation by changing the epigenetic regulators that sit on top of your genes that control inflammation. So that's good because inflammation can cause a lot of sometimes life-threatening illnesses. And then number five is the optimization of an enzyme called telomerase that is an enzyme that repairs and maintains the caps or telomeres of your chromosomes. And overall, this especially, but all these things help you basically slow the aging process. And when I turned in the aware book, you know, for review from my colleagues who do this science, one of them, Melissa Apple, who wrote a beautiful book called The Telomere Effect with the Nobel Prize winning Elizabeth Blackburn, who discovered this system. She said, Dan, Dan, you know, have you turned the book in yet for the, 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 the publisher? I said, no, not yet. It's going to the printer in two days. What did I leave out? She goes, oh, you know, everything's great. The book is great. But you left out one thing. I said, oh, my God, I thought I had to write another chapter. She said, no, no, you don't have to write another chapter. You just need to say one thing. It slows the aging process. And... I said, how can I say that? This is like the world's expert in aging. She goes, because Elizabeth and I have shown that, so you should say it. 
So you'll see that in the book too. And the idea here, as wild as these five things of improving health and the brain changes, the sixth thing of integrating the brain, these are now establishing, you know, some of the most rigorous peer-reviewed journals in the world in terms of science. Fortunately, I had developed years ago, before these studies were done, a practice called the Wheel of Awareness, which basically integrates consciousness by, you can imagine, a wheel putting the knowing of consciousness called being aware in the hub and all the different knowns like your first five senses of hearing and seeing, et cetera, on the first segment and then the interior signals of the body in the second segment, mental activities in the third, and then our interconnected relationships in the fourth segment, and you move a singular spoke around, and then you even have a chance to bend the spoke around or retract the spoke and explore the hub itself, the hub of awareness. So we've had over a million people stream this from our website. We give it away for free, so you can just go there, drdansiegel.com, and, and do it. And what's been so fascinating about it is I, as a scientist, I did this with my you know, patients, and they got better over all sorts of things, and anxiety got reduced. They could deal with traumas in a better way, things like that. My students who are therapists started using it themselves, and with their clients, they started finding improvements. So then I did it systematically in a workshop setting with 10,000 people. I recorded the results and took those results and tried to find a consilient understanding of what's the science of consciousness that we could understand what the wheel of awareness is doing and how it might work. So in a nutshell, you know, we, we can get into this, but the wheel has the three pillars right into it. The first two segments, you're doing focused attention. The third segment, you do open awareness. And when you explore the hub itself and then kind intention, you develop in the fourth segment. So it's, it's really fascinating because it's a, it's an integration of consciousness practice that just fortunately by good, whatever fortunate it has, what independently individual studies of those are usually separate focused attention open awareness and kind attention training but it's all in one practice so it helps get some research behind the individual practices and now i have a number of scientists who are going to systematically study it but in a 10,000 person study you get a view of what the experience is and that has opened up a whole new way of thinking about the nature of mind and consciousness and why integration is the basis of well-being in your body and in your relationships and so anyway that's that's what the three pillar practice is and that's if you said well what can i do to bring this into my life you know you can if you just like doing a practice like that you can go to our website and do it or if you want to see the practice taught alongside the science being explored then the book aware teaches you how to do that and that's a first of nine domains but it's an important one and a good place for everyone to start. And briefly, tell me a little bit about what the Wheel of Awareness, what does it actually mean or do? What is the process of going through it and how long does it take? Yeah, so it's a table in our office that then gets turned into just a visual image. No one wanted to call it the Table of Awareness, so we call it a wheel. And it's an image. So for some people, like kids in school, they use it just as a drawing to know that the knowing can be in the hub, the knowns on the rim. And you can just, with that knowledge, it's amazing, you begin to transform how your behavior is. So I have examples of how that happens. For adults and adolescents, what's really useful is to use it as a reflective practice. What this means is that, you know, you can take time. It can take about 20 minutes, 20 to 30 minutes, really. There's a shorter one that takes seven minutes, but I wouldn't recommend starting with that because you kind of zip around the wheel. 
But give yourself the space to do a 20 to 30 minute practice. And what it entails is sitting down, turning off your phone, and or if you're listening to my voice, you know, have the phone on airplane mode, but you know, have it to our website. And then you can listen to me guide you through the steps. So you begin with the first five senses as you center yourself in the hub, put the spoke out to the first segment, you explore hearing and seeing, then you let seeing go, then you go to smell, taste and touch. Then you move over and you explore the interior signals of the body. These are all energy patterns, either from the outside world on the first segment or the interior of the body for the second segment. Very powerful way of sensing what's called interoception, really great source of intuition and wisdom. Then you move the spoke over to the third segment, and now you're moving from the focused attention training to open awareness. And so you invite anything in. This is for emotions or thoughts, memories, hopes, dreams, longings, desires, beliefs, all that kind of stuff. Then you, in an advanced step, you can retract the spoke or bend the spoke or just leave the spoke in the hub and just experience what it's like to be aware of awareness itself. And that's often a pretty profound experience for people. And then you straighten the spoke out, move it over to your sense of connection to people physically close to you, more distant, people who live in your town, your city, your state, your country, your, the world, all living beings. And then you have statements of kind regard and that develop kind attention. And it ends with the focus on the integrated self of a we. So that's basically the practice. And what's absolutely amazing about it is now I've done it, you know, I did it systematically with 10,000 people, recorded the results. Now I've done it on way more than that. And it's been accessible to people who've never done what you would call a formal meditation before. But it's when it's been done by very experienced meditators, people who run meditation centers or monasteries, they're very excited about how this integrates these three basic practices, focused attention, open awareness, and kind attention into one streamlined practice. So in terms of developing success in creating well-being in your life, you've got a practice you can start to do, and just kind of like brushing your teeth, you do it on a regular basis, and you have dental hygiene. This is a way of having life hygiene by doing a regular practice, and and it's been really rewarding just to get feedback on when people incorporate the wheel as a regular practice into their life, a reflective practice. Some would call it meditation. Meditation simply means training your mind. So yes, it's a reflective integration of consciousness practice that people are finding very useful. And every time you do it, it's different. So it's very exciting to both learn about your mind and create a healthy mind. And that may be the answer to this next question, but what would be one first step action item, piece of homework to give to the listeners to concretely start to implement the ideas and themes that we've talked about today? Well, I would say the wheel of awareness from the feedback we have been getting is probably the most efficient and effective science-based consilient thing you can bring into your life. And, you know, that's just not from my own personal experience. Oh, I found it useful, which I do. I mean, it's what I do regularly, but it's it's so grounded in science. It comes from the simple idea of integrating consciousness, and it's so accessible for you to do anywhere. You can do it if you're traveling, you can do it on the beach, you can do it in your home, you can do it in a closet, you can do it in a living room, you can, I mean, it's, it's a totally, you know, transportable process that becomes your own. 
And it's so supported by the science that you can rest assured that it's in careful studies when you do the three pillars individually, those practices will be good. We'll see if maybe there's even a synergistic effect when you can get into one practice that has all three that are usually studied separately. It's going to be so exciting to see. But at least from the initial reports, people are finding it incredibly, I mean, if, if I said the words empowering, enlivening, illuminating, I mean, it's it's very exciting. So I would say the Wheel of Awareness, you can go to my website and just do it straight from there. We have all sorts of you know fun videos that you can see too that explore it and other things, you know, a book and audio book and all, all sorts of ways that if you do like to practice, you can learn more about it and make it woven into your life. And again, for listeners who want to find you, want to find the Wheel of Awareness, want to find all of your work online, what is the best place for them to do that? You know, the website is the best place to start, which is drdansiegel.com, and that's D-R-D-A-N-S-I-E-G-E-L.com, and there you'll find a whole bunch of stuff, and if you go to the resources tab, it'll take you straight to the Wheel of Awareness. Well, Dan, thank you so much for coming on the show, sharing all of this wisdom, so much knowledge across so many academic disciplines. I love the way that you've integrated everything into such a cohesive simple framework to be able to execute and start to implement to our lives so that we can become more integrated whole individuals. Beautiful. Well, thank you, Matt. It's been a pleasure to be here with you and thanks for having me on board. Thank you so much for listening to the science of success. We created the show to help you, our listeners, master evidence-based growth. I love hearing from listeners. If you want to reach out, share your story, or just say hi, shoot me an email. My email is matt at successpodcast.com. That's M-A-T-T at successpodcast.com. I'd love to hear from you and I read and respond to every single listener email. I'm gonna give you three reasons why you should sign up for our email list today by going to successpodcast.com, signing up right on the homepage. There's some incredible stuff that's only available to those on the email list, so be sure to sign up, including an exclusive curated weekly email from us called Mindset Monday, which is short, simple, filled with articles, stories, things that we found interesting and fascinating in the world of evidence-based growth in the last week. Next, you're getting an exclusive chance to shape the show, including voting on guests, submitting your own personal questions that we'll ask guests on air, and much more. Lastly, you're gonna get a free guide we created based on listener demand, our most popular guide, which is called How to Organize and Remember Everything. You can get it completely for free, along with another surprise bonus guide by signing up and joining the email list today. Again, you can do that at successpodcast.com, sign up right at the homepage, or if you're on the go, just text the word SMARTER, S-M-A-R-T-E-R, to the number 44222. Remember, the greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to a friend, either live or online. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us an awesome review and subscribe on iTunes because that helps boost the algorithm that helps us move up the iTunes rankings and helps more people discover the science of success. Don't forget, if you want to get all the incredible information we talk about in the show, links, transcripts, everything we discuss, and much more, be sure to check out our show notes. You can get those at successpodcast.com. Just hit the show notes button right at the top. Thanks again, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Science of Success. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. 
book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.